Please stand with me as we read the scripture for today, which is taken from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the floor. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by the rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied a scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. 
and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Well, this morning, um, we are back in Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, which is one of the, um, probably one of the most famous chapters of the Bible. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, uh, you know that there, you know something about Rahab. So this passage was actually the first passage that I think I ever preached in a church. I asked the church where I preached that to wipe it from all their records. Uh, and I went back this week and looked, and apparently they did a really good job because I couldn't find it anywhere. I found a few of my notes that I did in preparation for that sermon, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure my memory serves me right that it was a, it was a bad sermon. But I'm thankful that, that I got to do it, thankful for the church that gave me that experience. One of the interesting things about uh, Joshua chapter 2 is that it is not required, really, strictly speaking, in the flow of the book of Joshua. So you could, you could look at chapter 1 and then read chapter 3 and there wouldn't be, you wouldn't miss a whole lot in the context of Joshua. And the main thing that you would have to understand to appreciate what God is doing in giving the Israelites this promised land. So because of that, there have been many people who have said maybe Joshua 2 wasn't in the original context or at the very least isn't really important to the development of the story. And so I would say, you know, that if the author of Joshua is giving us something of a parenthetical in the line of the story, that it makes it all the more important. There's all the more reason that we need to look at it and we need to pay attention. So what is going on in Joshua chapter 2? In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua is sending spies, two spies, into the promised land to see if God was still going to give them the land that he had promised them. And what the spies discover is, yes, God is going to give them the land, but he has something else to hand over to them as well. Rahab. I was Googling this week as somewhat of something of an experiment if you put the words, can God, in your search engine, what would be the recommended searches that, that Google would, would think that you might be searching? Uh, and the answers that the top of the list were, can God forgive me, can God redeem me, and can God use me? Those are three of the top questions in there. And I, there's a lot I don't understand about Google algorithms, but I do know that to end up there, a lot of people have to ask that question. Probably at least tens of thousands have to be asking, can God forgive me? Can God redeem me? Can God use me? So if tens of thousands of people are asking that question to Google, I have to think that, that some of us in this room would be asking the same kinds of questions. And if I could sit with the people who have asked this question, and if, if I only had one chapter of the Bible to be able to, to give them or to teach them that would answer all three of those questions, it would be the story of Rahab. It would be Joshua chapter 2, because it does so well answer all of these questions. I don't know if there's a clearer example in the Bible where God's love and his grace are on display alongside the power of trusting in him. 
So this morning, I want to look at Rahab's story, and I, I just want to look at three things. I want to look at Rahab's situation. I want to look at Rahab's salvation. And then thirdly, I want to look a little bit at Rahab's faith. So those are the three things I want to do this morning. Her situation, her salvation, and her faith. So first, her situation. I think the plainest way that, that I could describe her situation is bleak. Her situation is bleak. I mean, f- for one, she has a bad pedigree. She's a Gentile living outside of God's grace. But she's not just any old Gentile. She's a Canaanite. All right? And it, Canaanites were one of the groups of people that God had said, I am going to wipe this people away. So as a rule of thumb, you know, you don't want to be a part of a people group that God has decided he's going to wipe out as that army approaches. (laughs) That's her situation. And I know that, that it can sound really backwards or very even immoral of God to, to speak about wiping out a people group. And we're, gonna, we're going to be looking at that and addressing it as we go on. But in case that's you, I want to say at least two things. I want to make two things clear about God's command to go and wipe out the Canaanites so that we can continue to listen to the story of Rahab. The first thing is that we need to understand that the Canaanites were truly horrible. It was a truly horrible culture. I mean, they were, they were not just engaged in bad activities. They were proud of the things that they were doing. And we don't know this just from the biblical historical account, although that, that's enough for us. We now have historical evidence to prove that they were engaged in and boasting about things like incest and adultery, bestiality, and child sacrifice. And I, my hunch is that for the average American, if we take child sacrifice out of that list, we would think, well, I mean, yeah, that's not the ideal way to live your life, but I'm I'm not sure that it merits being wiped off the face of the earth. But then let's put child sacrifice back in. And we have a smaller but, but vocal part of our culture who supports babies being killed as they're exiting the mom who would say the same thing. Not the ideal way to live your life, but I I can't imagine that these kinds of things merit being wiped off the map. And historically, our culture is one of the first to really even question the morality of God in this moment. So most of the history of the world has not questioned the morality of God in his judgment against the Canaanites. So if that's true, we need to ask ourselves, what has changed that that we now live in a culture that would question the morality of a God who would do this? And I think the answer is simple. Our culture is increasingly looking like the Canaanites. So if our culture is increasingly looking like the Canaanites, of course we're not going to like the idea that God disliked the Canaanite culture so much that he would want to remove them from the map. I think that's what's going on. The first thing that we need to make clear as we look at God's command to wipe the Canaanites out. But the second thing that we need to understand is that the Israelites were simply the method that God wanted to use in wiping them out. It it wasn't that the Israelites were this picture of faithfulness here. (laughs) We see this actually in Deuteronomy 9. Moses writes, 
not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Rahab has a bad pedigree, (laughs) but she also, she's been making some bad decisions. So her, her plight gets a little more bleak. I mean, she isn't like the one shining beacon of morality among all the Canaanites. <laughs> She's a prostitute. And, and people have tried to diminish the language of prostitute here and say things like, well, maybe she was just working in an inn where prostitution happened. Or maybe she was a temple prostitute and not a common prostitute, which I don't know how that really makes things that much better. But the language of the text is clear. Rahab is a prostitute. A lying prostitute, I guess, at that. But she's, she's making bad decisions. And, and we need to see that as a part of her, her situation. Thirdly, she's, so she's making bad decisions. But she also, I think we can say, has had some bad luck. So I, I think I can see at least two aspects to her bad luck. Her prostitution does show some bad decision making. And I don't want to, I don't want to step off that or back up from that at all. But our hearts have to break for someone who ends up in this, this kind of lifestyle. I mean, the, 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 no woman that I have ever known aspires to this kind of lifestyle. Things had to happen to her, probably, for her to end up as a prostitute. We don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's that her parents died at a young age, and, and this was the only way she could figure out to support herself. Maybe some siblings. Maybe her parents sold her into li- this lifestyle to pay off some sort of debt that they had. We don't know, but I think it's fair to say this wasn't her life plan here. That's one part of her bad luck. The other part of her bad luck, I think, is that she lives in Jericho and that the spies came to her place. Because we see immediately that the king, the king found out, the king knew she had harbored spies. And when you, I think it's helpful to picture, to understand what is meant by king here. Um, king in that day would be more like a dictatorial mayor it was a na- it was a city state so imagine um imagine buddy dyer as a totalitarianistic ruler of greater orlando that, that's kind of what you have here he knows that the spies have come in and it's not just a knowledge of the spies he's really scared of these spies he has heard of what has been going on that this israel is marching towards this land that he that they want the land that the canaanites are on And he knows that there have been, at the very least, supernatural things accompanying this this army as it marches forward. So this king is scared. He hears their spies. He wants to talk to Rahab. And this situation doesn't seem at this point like it's getting any better for her. And I have to wonder at this point... Like, why is it that that the spies chose Rahab's house? And and lots of people have ventured guesses. You know, maybe maybe the spies went in there for the same reason that a lot of foreign men would go to a house like Rahab's. I mean, Jericho, after all, was on the main trading routes. I don't think that's what they were doing. I don't think anything in the text supports that as what they were doing. Um... I also don't think that Rahab 
would have trusted them as, as people sent from God, by God to her if they had used her in the same kind of way that all the other men had been using her. I think if you're a spy and you're going into Jericho and you're thinking, where is a place that I can lay low, not be noticed, and get the kind of information that I need about the city, I think Rahab's house is a very logical place to go. So it makes sense to me that they would go to Rahab's house. But whatever the motivation of the spies, I think we can agree that Rahab's situation is bleak. Things are not going well for Rahab. Which makes her salvation all the more spectacular. The bleaker the story, the greater God's glory. So let's look at that salvation. Now, I think it's important when you look at anyone's salvation, specifically Rahab's, as we're looking at it this morning, we need to recognize that there are two pieces to the story. There's God's piece and there's her piece. And, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. God is really in charge and we really have a responsibility to do something. We're not robots. And so we're going to start out by looking at Rahab's piece of the puzzle. And Rahab, she was involved, I would say, in three ways. She was engaged in her mind, in her heart, and in her will. We see all three of those things in the story. So I want to kind of break down those three things. First of all, Rahab's head was engaged. She knew something. She was responding to a knowledge that she had received. And, you know, I don't think it matters that, she, yes, she stumbled on this knowledge. This knowledge was brought to her. Nevertheless, she had a knowledge that would lead to her salvation, and that's the first piece of the puzzle. Look at what she said to the spies, right, first time they met. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. For the Lord your God, he is the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab knew something. She had this knowledge. How is it that she got this knowledge? I mean, there was no CNN, no Fox News, no Twitter to understand what's going on outside of the walls of the city. So how is it that she heard these things? I think it's, I think it's because of her occupation. I don't think anybody in that town would have had better access to information about what's going on outside of Jericho probably than her. She would at least be at the top level of those who had information about what was going on outside. So that's how I think she knew. But w more importantly, what is it that she knew? She knew that the God of Israel was the one true God. And I could imagine her growing up in this, this horrible life and crying out to God to save her. Crying out, maybe in the beginning, to their pagan gods. Maybe that evolved to a crying out to a generic God. And at some point, her prayers were directed at the one true God of Israel. She knew that. And that was the beginning of her path to salvation. How sweet is it that, that the God of Israel would use this truly evil thing and this truly evil 
situation that she had ended up with and would be the very way that God would bring her the message of her salvation. You know, we see in the Bible from Joshua to Jesus, God entering into truly evil situations, evil scenarios, and using it for our good, for the good of others, and for, her, for his glory. That's what God does over and over again in the Bible, and here's another example of him doing just that. So if you're in a situation and it feels so bleak that you don't know how in the world any good could possibly come from it, my hope is that the story of Rahab would be some sort of encouragement to you that God entered in to this horrible situation to bring her the news that would ultimately save her. So Rahab's head is engaged. Secondly, Rahab's heart is engaged. Twice in this passage, Rahab says that their hearts were melted away. Everyone in the city, their spirits were melted away. Now, I think they were, they were all engaged, I think we can safely say, at an emotional level. But they were engaged in different ways. Most of Jericho, they were scared because they heard this, mar- this army was coming that wanted to take them out. Rahab, though, she had this knowledge. <laughs> so her emotion wasn't fear, it was hope. It was hope that God was going to use this situation to save her. She was engaged at a heart level. And so should every one of us be too. And I, you know, I always want to walk a fine line when I start talking about emotion in the Christian life. Because I know we're not to be led by emotion. But the gospel of Jesus Christ should always be accompanied by emotion. And I know some of you here, you're wired like Spock. And that's okay. You, you, you have emotion, but you don't show it all the time. That's okay. You need to feel free to be wired the way that you're wired. Others of you, I know you're wired more like Buddy the Elf. Everyone knows how you're feeling at all times. And that's okay. But our hearts should be engaged at some level with this knowledge. To engage God only with our head and not with our heart. That leaves us just as spiritually bankrupt as if we had never heard in the first place. Only now we're accountable even more in some way for the knowledge that we've received. I mean, Satan, he knows probably more than all of us combined in terms of biblical knowledge. But what benefit is it giving him? If there's no emotion accompanied with the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives, in our hearts, then we may really have to ask ourselves if this knowledge is more academic, if this faith is more academic than it is real. So Rahab's head is engaged. Her heart is engaged. And then thirdly, finally, her will is engaged. So her knowledge and her heart lead her to do something. It leads her to take action. It leads her will to move. How is that? Well, she takes refuge in the God of Israel. 
She meets with these spies. She agrees that she would trust these spies, that she would protect these spies, that she would leave this mark on the door so that when the Israelites came, everyone in her home would be spared. And if, if that's sounding a little familiar to you, it should. Because there are certain themes in the Bible that God wants to hammer home. Certain themes in the Bible that, uh, that he wants to make clear. And so this story brings back what memory? Passover. This would have been a very recent memory to many of these Israelites. They would have maybe known people who experienced it. And in the Passover, God's judgment and wrath was coming on every home in Egypt, except for those homes that were marked by what? The sign of faith. Those homes were passed over. So here we have another reminder of the Passover, and what this is doing is pointing us forward, pointing us forward to that ultimate Passover. Because everyone, everyone has God's judgment and wrath coming for them. Except those who have the sign of faith in Jesus Christ on the door of their hearts. That's what this is pointing to. Rahab responded and it saved her. Had, had Rahab just known and felt, that wouldn't, have, that wouldn't have done anything. She had to respond. She had to respond in faith. And there are many things that we know and feel we should do, but it doesn't help us in any way. I mean, some of you know that you should stop smoking. You want to stop smoking, but you don't. Some of you know you drink too much. You want to stop drinking, but you don't. Some of you know you should exercise more. You should eat more healthy. You want to, but you don't. And in the same way, it's possible for us to know about God, to desire him at some level, but not to respond in faith in a way that will really save us. And you know, I, I've spent so many years with college students. A refrain that I hear over and over again is, I'm just not ready now. You know, just thinking that this door is always going to be open. But what we don't realize is when we say not yet, we're really just saying no. We're, we're, we're understanding with our head. We're at some level engaged in the heart, but our will is not moving us. But like Rahab, we need to have all three if we're going to experience the salvation that the Bible tells us about. So Rahab all had all three. She had these, what I call, separate but inseparable components of faith. But there's a really important question I think that we have to ask at this point. Why is it that God sent the spies? You know, why did God send the spies in the first place? Because if you know the story, you know how Jericho is going to be delivered over. The, the walls come crashing down. I mean, what use are spies? It's like sending spies into Hiroshima before the nuclear bomb goes off. It's just not necessary. And some have speculated that maybe, maybe Joshua was disobedient or it showed a lack of faith that he sent a spy. I don't, I don't think that's, hap- that's what's going on. I actually think God did tell Joshua to send these spies. 
I think at some level we can agree that God allowed it to. There's no, nowhere in this text does God indicate in any way that this was wrong in sending the spies. So why is it then that, that God sent the spies? I think that in the immediate context, I'm not jumping to a larger context yet, in the immediate context, we can see two really good reasons that God would send the spies. The first reason, and this is more the second, secondary reason, I think, but we'll start with it. The secondary reason is to encourage the Israelites. I mean, look at, at how what God is doing with Rahab encouraged the Israelites. You know, they... They wanted to know, is God really going to give us this land that he promised us? Is he really going to do it? And look at what, he's, what the Israelites say in verse 24. Truly, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the lands melt away because of us. So the spies... They're undoubtedly used to encourage the Israelite people. Did they necessitate this kind of confirmation? No. It's just God's grace and his love that he would provide this kind of confirmation. You know, kind of in the same way that you may not have any reason to disbelieve the words, I love you, from your spouse. But it sure is nice when it's accompanied by a nice note or a nice date or some pretty flowers. It gives you assurance that, no, maybe you shouldn't need, but you're happy to have. And so in the same kind of way, the spies are like God's pretty flowers to the Israelites. Yes, I am going to do what I said I would do. But secondly, and more importantly, I think God sent the spies for Rahab. God sent the spies to go and save one of his people. God knows his people. He knows his people. They know his voice. And no one is ever out of the reach of God. It doesn't matter if you're Rahab behind the walls of Jericho. Or if it's one of your friends or family or loved ones who's making horrible decisions in their life and seem to be going the opposite direction. It doesn't matter if somebody's living on the other side of the earth with seemingly little or no access to the gospel at all. No one is outside of God's reach. And I had a really sweet reminder of this this morning. Uh, not this morning, this week. I don't write my sermons the Sunday morning, generally, if everything's going well. But this week, I, I was talking to Juddy Valaket. Many of you know Juddy and Abby Valaket because you're their sending church. We're their sending church. They went and planted a church in in southern Italy, in Salerno, Italy, where incidentally I also lived and worked with them. So they're also, they're not just our sending church, they're dear friends of mine. And he was calling me to let me know about something truly amazing happening in, in their city. So if you know anything about Italy, you know this is one of the least fruitful places in the world, statistically speaking. Less than 2% of this country goes to any kind of church more than three times a year. And that includes Catholic churches and Protestant churches together. Most research would lead us to believe that probably half of 1% of that country are true Christians. And this, this includes the absolute fringe of our faith. <laughs> half of 1%. And Juddy was calling to tell me that in a matter of weeks, they're going to baptize 10 people on one Sunday. You know, Mike Graham, our... Our church analyst 
good with all things numbers, all things numbers. He calculated that that would be the equivalent of us at OGC baptizing 75 people in one Sunday. I mean, from Milan to Sicily, everybody over there is praising God for what's happening in Chiesa Nuova Vita. No one ever thought that something like this was happening, but it's a picture, just like Rahab, that no one, no matter what their situation, is out of the reach of the God of the Bible. And I think that fact alone should motivate us to go and to tell people. Because anyone can respond. There's nobody that is beyond God's ability to open their eyes and open their hearts. That's why with the catechism this morning, I had us read about effectual calling. That's what God does. He goes before us. And if you're tempted to feel discouraged or scared when you go out and want to tell people about Jesus, I think you'll find comfort in the fact that there were many heroes of the faith that were scared too. They had moments of wondering, is this really going to work? Am I really called to do this? What are they going to do to me? And in one of those moments, when the Apostle Paul was having one of these moments, Jesus Christ himself showed up to him. And we read this in Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Do you hear that? God is saying, they haven't heard the gospel yet, but I have many in this city. So go, Paul, go, spies. And in the same way, in his New Testament, he is telling us, go, OGC. I have many people. Even though they are not believers yet, I'm working in their hearts. So go, go boldly, go courageously, I think would be the way that we would hear that. In the book of Joshua. All right, so that's Rahab's salvation. We've seen her situation. And then lastly, before we finish, I really want to say something about her faith. And I know I'm going to get ahead of our context a little bit here. But there are three elements to Rahab's faith that I I think we all need to see because we need to examine our own faith and see are these components true of us. And the first component of Rahab's faith is that it caused her to risk. It caused her to risk. She didn't know if the king was going to find out or what he would do. She didn't really ultimately know if these spies were going to do what they said they would do. She didn't know that her house would really be saved destruction. So she's risking here. The picture that popped up in my mind as I was looking at this passage this week was Jesus talking to his disciples. After everyone seemingly had left Jesus, people were leaving him in droves. And he looks at his disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And they look at him and they say, what? Where else am I going to go? And so what the disciples were saying is, I don't see the full, the full story here. I don't see where exactly this path is going. I can only see two steps, but those are the only two steps I know to take. And in the same way, Rahab, she sees two steps, but she's willing to risk. Because those steps are clear to her. And I 
have to imagine there's, there's somebody here thinking, all right, Jim, all right, you want to lift up Rahab as this example of faith, but she's clearly lying. <laughs> she's lying to the king uh, about the spies. I mean, could, if she was really an example of faith, don't you think she would have trusted enough not to lie? And forests, I think, have been decimated over the debate. When is it okay to lie? Was it okay for Rahab to, to lie? Is it okay to lie if you're, if you're helping somebody out? Do you only owe the truth to people who value the truth? All kinds of different people have weighed in on different angles about whether it's okay to lie in certain situations or not because of this text. But I want to tell you what is really clear from the author of Joshua. He does not care about the lie. He's not interested in the ethics of the lie. He's not doing anything to explain or dismiss or validate this lie. Because it's so far away from the main purpose of the story of Joshua. One commentator I read said to focus on the lie in the story is like a husband coming home and his wife opens the refrigerator and shows you all the great food that she's prepared for the family this whole week. And the husband looks at all this food and then reaches to the top of the fridge and says, hey, the top of this fridge really is dusty. I, maybe it's dusty, but this is not the time for that. In light of what all is happening here, the lie is almost irrelevant to the main point of the story. So we can't get lost. We can't get sidetracked by this lie. Okay, don't lie, okay? Don't lie. There you go. But don't let that hijack what's going on in the story of Rahab. I know the author of this book and the ultimate author, God, <laughs> would not want that to happen. All right, so Rahab had a faith that risked. She also had a faith that gave her a family. And, and this is where I'm moving forward a little bit. But she was saved because she believed in the God of Israel. And now Israel became her people. So she got a new family. She became a part of this group of people. And in the same way... When we believe in Jesus Christ, we get a church family. We get a church family who knows us, who loves us, who comes alongside us, who encourages us, who challenges us. We want to be people who resist the temptation to just hop from church to church. Or be people who, you know, in Florida only go to church when it's raining and you can't do something outside. <laughs> but not raining so much that we might get wet. <laughs> There's that, that little middle ground when we'll consider going to church. God has given us a church family. And if your faith has yet to provide you with a church family, I would love for you to consider OGC as that family. I'm finish, we're finishing up our Discover OGC class now, um, which is the way that you learn about this church and what it would look like to make this church your church family. But if you don't have a church family, I would love for you to mark September on your calendars and join me in the next Discover OGC class and, and, and see if God would have this church become your church family. All right, so Rahab's faith, it risked, it gave her a new family, and then finally third, it had an impact in the kingdom of God. And so there, there are these ripple effects from Rahab's life. Certainly it had an impact in that it encouraged Israel, and it, and it helped Israel come in and, and take the land that they were promised. But we can see, if we read the rest of our, our Bible, that she had an impact on how many millions of people? 
because her story is not just recorded here, but the author of Hebrews and James document her as a model of what it looks like to have faith in Christ and to be saved on the merits of Jesus alone and nothing that we do in this life. But her impact doesn't stop there because we can see that when she gets her new family, she marries an Israelite and she becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. And she is a part of producing the line of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, you want to talk about the impact that this Canaanite prostitute had. And I guarantee you, just by virtue of being a 21st century American, we have infinitely more in our favor than she did. And so none of us can for one second begin to think that that God might not use me. You remember that last question in the search bar, can God use me? If God can use Rahab, God can use any of us. And I was asking Juddy this week, you know, as he's telling me about these, these people being baptized, tell me their stories. And he went one by one and he told me their stories. And my favorite was this young, vibrant lady who, who trusted in Jesus Christ. She was led to Jesus by an old, socially awkward, not necessarily good-looking person. <laughs> not a mover and shaker in the city, yet God had chosen to use her, the least likely maybe in the church, to lead this young, vibrant lady to Jesus Christ. God can use any of us. I would go so far as to say God wants to use all of us. The only requirement to having an impact in this world is faith. Faith to go to Jesus Christ is our only hope and then faith to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's the only requirement. And in this world, there really are only two types of people. There are the Rahabs and there are the Jerichos. God's judgment and wrath is coming for every human being. And this isn't a fun thing to talk about. It isn't an enjoyable thing to talk about. I don't, you know, wake up on Monday morning and think, oh, what do I want to talk about? God's judgment on people. But it's necessary because it's true. But the Christian hope is that Jesus Christ, he endured the wrath of God's army in our place. And when the sign of faith is on the door of our hearts, we're no longer a Jericho, we're a Rahab. And we're saved. And if we are a Rahab, and if God is going to use you, he's going to stretch you. He's going to challenge you, but he's going to bless you. He's going to give you the resources that you need to endure that stretching and to be used. Resources like a church family to come alongside you and guide you. Resources like his Holy Spirit to come inside us, to motivate us, to encourage us, to comfort us. But God, just as he did in the life of Rahab, is going to give us whatever it is that we need. The question really is, do we trust him? Do we trust him? And will we ask to be 
be used in that way. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this time to come in and be reminded by the story of Rahab that you pursue us. Every one of us, we were converted in the same kind of way. We were just as out of reach, spiritually speaking, as Rahab. She's just a picture of how far we were before you opened our eyes. And so we pray that that truth would sink deep within us, that we would that we would know this, that we would cherish it, and that we would respond to it. Lord, give us minds to understand, hearts to believe, and wills to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.